0: Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy Playbook, the podcast which shares real-world stories on circular matters that are reshaping London and the world. I'm Ali Moore from the London Waste and Recycling Board and I'm here as ever with Wayne Hubbard, our CEO. Hello. Hi. Um, Welcome. Today uh, we are talking about flats and flats recycling. Yes. So this is a podcast about the conclusions that have come out of a big project we've been running with Peabody, along with six London boroughs, which included Camden, Hackney, Lambeth, Tower Hamlets, Westminster and Islington, around flats recycling.
1: Can I just say, we always call it flats recycling, and we will continue to do that throughout this podcast, but just so we get our terms defined properly at the outset, what we mean is... The recycling of waste created by people who live in flats.
0: Exactly right. This is about the amount of recycling that we collect from flats.
1: From people who live in flats. So London has a lot of flats, but there are different types of flats. I think if you think about it for a second, you'll kind of realise, hold on, there are flats above shops, there Mm. are converted flats, there are purpose-built flats. We're going to talk about a project that Resource London have undertaken Resource London is Lwob's partnership with RAP. And this project exclusively looked at estates.
0: Yes, purpose-built so, flats. Purpose-built flats
1: in estates. But the learnings, the recommendations, the findings are applicable probably to any purpose-built flat context. Now, why is that important in London? It's important in London and I suspect in other major cities throughout the world and to a greater or lesser extent to all cities throughout the world because London has a lot of flats and therefore a lot of people who live in flats and the logistical and operational issues associated with collecting, recycling from flats are significant.
0: They are. They are. They're huge. So how many flats have we got then?
1: According to the latest data, about half of London's housing is some form of flatted property. In terms of purpose-built flats, it's around about 38% total. But inner London, so in the central areas, obviously, there's a greater proportion of flatted properties. And it it rises to about 70% of all properties in central London or inner London are flatted properties. And at least uh, half of those are purpose-built. So it's a lot of purpose-built flats. And you can start to kind of think about why cities like London have significant logistical issues associated with the collection of waste from those properties because they're typically communal recycling services. Food waste is difficult or perceived to be difficult to collect from flatted properties. There are all kinds of different places where the bins get put in all kinds of different contexts with all kinds of different ways of collecting the bins and some of them are caretakers some of them are not the signage is good in others the signage isn't so good in some so there were loads of barriers associated with the collection of waste and recycling from flatted properties predominantly these properties were built well
0: there's quite a lot of victorians isn't well, right it's, it's
1: gonna we're gonna find out a bit more mm-hmm. aren't we in the conversation but significantly i think the most important fact is Almost all of the properties that are being built in London are currently purpose-built flatted properties. And yeah. that's always going to be the case now. Yeah. So London's future housing type is predominantly flatted properties. So we need to get this right, purpose-built flats.
0: We do. Um, so there's some stats about uh, development and building in London... Apparently by 2030, 46% of the city's households will be living in purpose-built flats and around 90% of all new household units being built by 2030 will be flats. So an extra 1.89 million flats by 2030 is what we're expecting.
1: Okay, so that purpose-built number is the number that we're interested in as opposed to the converted. So the the current purpose-built percentage is 38 and it's going to rise to 46 by 2030.
0: Mm. Which is going to be an even bigger issue. I mean, it, just as a, a feel for how much worse the recycling levels are that are collected from flats as opposed to houses or what we call in the industry curbside properties. Um, I think the assumption before we went into this project was that traditionally people assume that you can collect less than half the amount of recycling from flats that you would from a normal sort of curbside property, a house or a you know shared house. I think we found that there was quite a lot less than that, actually, because we did quite detailed waste composition analysis as part of the project. But before we delve into that, we should probably hear from some people who are actually involved in the project. So the way we're going to run it today is we have recorded an interview between or conversation between a number of key players in the project, which ran for two years. And one of those is Gemma Scott, who works here at LWAB, who project managed the whole thing. And we're going to hear a little bit about why the different partners got involved and why they feel this Flats Recycling Project has been such an important piece of work. Hello everybody, nice to see you all here. We've got a number of people in in the room today who were involved with our Flats Project, so do you want to just quickly introduce
2: yourselves?
3: Gemma Scott, work at Resource London, leading on all the Flats work that we do, and responsible for the Flats Report.
2: Hello, I'm Becky Rowe. I'm the owner and head of research at Revening Reality, and was responsible for leading the initial ethnographic research part of the process.
4: Hi, I'm James Glass, head of estate services. Uh, been involved in the project from Peabody
3: Trust side of things.
0: So, why did the project start in the first place, Gemma?
3: I guess I mean I've been in the industry now for probably well over twenty years, believe it or not. And one of the one of the biggest barriers that we found to increasing recycling for London as a whole, as well as in the individual boroughs, is the fact that we just don't get the kind of recycling rates out of flats that we do out of houses. And there's been, you know, a reasonable bit of research done around it nationally and both in London. we spent an awful lot of money trying to figure out what it might take to try and get people in in flats to recycle more. But yet we were still no closer to finding out the key thing that we needed to to change or to Mm. help residents do. So hence the kind of of genesis of this project, really, I guess. So... Um, working with residents to really understand from their point of view what they're, you know, they're not getting right or we're not doing, yeah. we're not doing right for them yeah. um, that we could be getting um, much better at. Yeah. So. And James, from your perspective, obviously you manage a lot of flats and estates
0: and I think that the project really kicked off at the point at which you guys spoke and decided that you were going to do something together. What drove you to get involved?
4: Well, it was an interesting challenge for us. We'd never really looked at waste as a landlord in that kind of way. Uh, it challenged us to think about our responsibilities differently rather than saying the bins belong to the council. Uh, Gemma was saying, well, do you want to do something more? And we said, yeah, actually, we do. We're sort of a sustainable business in the best way we can be. And this was a new way for us to look at uh, how we can help our residents and the lives beyond the front door sort of thing and the long, longer term. And It's been a really interesting and eye-opening experience for us.
0: How many flats off the top of your head challenged now?
4: Well, I know as a landlord, we've got about 65,000, of which 55 are in London, uh, and a large majority are flats. but we've got a good variety, which is one of the reasons that uh, Gemma approached us, and we're in a lot of the London boroughs in the central areas as well, like right in the heart of London, in Soho and Covent Garden.
0: Which I think is where we consistently see bigger issues is in denser more urban populations so so from your perspective Becky so you got involved at the point at which we thought well we didn't really know how what the issues really were from a human at a very human level from from a from a resident perspective
2: What were your first thoughts when you started getting involved with the project? Well, I think um, James said that one of the kind of big challenges in this piece of work was understanding lives beyond the front door, and and really trying to kind of understand what's actually going on from the perspective of residents is quite quite a challenge. Um, And to build on what Jen was saying, there's sort of a bit of a gap in in work in this area, and it was really important that there was some really high quality evidence that could um, help to kind of underpin the whole programme.
0: That was James from Peabody and Becky from Revealing Reality and Gemma having a chat about why we got involved with this project in the first place and some of the things that we were trying to do. So particularly good to hear about Peabody wanting to be a better landlord, didn't you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's through using progressive landlords like Peabody that we can really crack this this problem. So that's really positive
0: to hear. It is, it is. Um, And Becky talked about the need for insights, and as part of the lead-in to designing the actual project and implementing something on the 12 estates that we ended up doing this project on, we did a couple of pieces of research. One was more traditional inventories across the estates, which most of those listeners that we have who are from a waste and recycling background will be familiar with. But we also did a very in-depth piece of ethnography.
1: Ethnography? Ethnography, exactly. (laughs) And what is ethnography?
0: So ethnography... For someone like me who works in behaviour and behaviour change, ethnography is like the holy grail of research. It is generally with much smaller numbers than you can do quantitative research, so numbers-based stuff, you know, normally pretty small numbers because what you do is you really get under the skin of people's behaviours by going in-depth, spending time with them in the place where the behaviours are happening. So you don't invite a bunch of people out to a focus group where they all go, oh, yeah, 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 recycling, I do a lot of that, and nod at each other and do what they think the loudest voice in the room wants them to do. You go into people's houses and flats, you talk to them where they live, you possibly record them or ask them to record themselves, doing their daily tasks, going about their daily lives, and you actually get under the skin of their behaviours, so... That's why we wanted to do ethnography. And this next section is the same team talking about how that ran and what some of the really interesting findings were from it. What kind of insights were there out out there already? kind of swim in a sea of insights all the time, I imagine, and um, there must have been something out there giving clues already, or was there not? Was this really new,
2: do you think? There's a huge amount of evidence out there about recycling behaviours, how people feel about the environment, Um, lots and lots of insight, but actually the detail of what goes on in flats in London was just not really present. So there's a lot of kind of hypotheses that people had, and I would say that the whole team and actually the wider group of stakeholders coming to this project had a huge amount of hypotheses and assumptions. What we were looking to do, I think, was to go beyond just description of how we think people behave, but to really kind of push into that behaviour change space and think about what would really make a difference, what would really end up helping (coughs) people who live in flats to actually recycle more.
0: So let's talk a bit about what we did find out then, Becky, from the research that you guys ran. Um, Because I know I I sat in on a lot of the debrief sessions and they were eye-opening a lot of the time.
2: I mean, we had a lot of our assumptions challenged about what people um, know, how motivated they are to recycle, and how easy or difficult it was for them to recycle on a day-to-day basis. And I think one of the perhaps most surprising things was just how inconsistent people were. So they sometimes showed great recycling ability and lots of motivation to do it, but then sometimes they just didn't do anything. And partly that was to do with the difficulty of how they could organise sort of recycling systems within their flat. And it was um, the whole sort of systems that they had in place seemed quite fragile Um, For example, um, people often didn't have space for a separate recycling bin, so they would improvise receptacles, which meant that sometimes they just didn't have a receptacle to improvise into. So say they didn't have any bags for life left that week, there just wouldn't be a receptacle. So then the recycling would just go in the main bin. And that's to do with their lack of space and a real kind of sense of being slightly disorganised. But it also sort of suggested that they were quite motivated to recycle when it was made easier for them to do so, and there's a whole range of factors that contribute to how easy or difficult it was for them to recycle on a day-to-day basis.
3: I think, from my point of view, one of the most interesting things was the fact was just how small some of the kitchens and the flats were. Certainly, the flats that we looked at, I, I couldn't believe the kind of size. Kitchens
2: of, with families, yeah. kitchens with sharers yeah. as well. Particularly, often the kitchens were. Um, rammed full of stuff people were improvising storage and um, which we just never would have thought so people were storing things like um, tins of beans in the fridge or even in the oven because they didn't really use their main oven cavity for very much so they thought mm. well that's a great space from which I can store things
0: I remember the story that you came back with is somebody who kept their iron
3: in their oven which I
0: thought was one Ingenious. of the most perfect <laughs> Perfect t- yeah, storage solutions ever for someone who doesn't cook.
3: <laughs> I think if we're expecting somebody to have another another receptacle of some kind for for recycling as well as, re- as rubbish, that that's just, that's yeah. just shows the challenge that we've got to try and actually achieve that. Because a lot of the flats of Peabody
4: um, were built 1880 to 1910 when you didn't store that volume of stuff. The way people lived their lives was so different. It was more fresh. You'd go to the local a veg man, you'd get your bits, you use it and it's gone. Absolutely. So. As a landlord, we've made changes to the buildings over the years, but there's only so much space in each building that you can work to and families started getting bigger over crowdings was an issue as well and uh, the one that stood out for me was the iron as well. It's funny that yeah. everyone remembers the iron yeah, because yeah, it was <laughs> such an unusual thing. Yeah.
2: But on the same time as well, like the people were very house proud and the fact that they're putting the iron in the, in the oven and they're very aware and self-conscious about how, how tidy their kitchens were, so trying to put things away so that they were kind of out of sight <coughs> and to create a bit more space. Some of the most committed people to recycling were proudly leaving their recycling out on shelves. But other people, that wasn't really an acceptable solution because their kitchen already felt quite cramped and then to have rubbish stacked up on the sides just felt mm. kind of just one step too much so a big challenge for us was thinking about how we give them the in kitchen solutions <coughs> that would enable them to feel organized but they're also kind of worked with um their routes to the to the rubbish bin which was obviously another really big yeah. challenge that we encountered
4: Talking about the proud one it was interesting how people view different elements of recycling in different ways so your tins of beans no one puts those on the shelf yeah. glass bottles of beer, yeah, I'll show you those on my kitchen shelf. Yeah. <laughs> so it totally varied from item to item what was willing to be left out yeah. uh, or not put in a particular place, um, which is really kind of just intriguing how different people see different items differently. It has
2: knock-on consequences to what is actually being recycled on a day-to-day basis, which, yeah. you know, that means that a whole category of items weren't being taken exactly. down to the to the
3: bins. Yeah. I think the other thing, the other story, not related to, to in the actual houses, but the other thing that really that really struck with me was a was a chap who just said basically people use the recycling and waste bins as a as a toilet, or somewhere to go for a toilet. Mm. And so, you know, and he was just how can you expect me to kind of want to go and recycle my, my, my waste if I'm literally, yeah. you know, I don't even want to be anywhere near them because they're so disgusting.
2: Yeah, that disgusting right is a big deal. Yeah.
0: And that came up in the inventories as well, isn't it? Because we should mm. say that Revealing Reality and Becky's team did the ethnographic research, but we also did these very sort of practical inventories of the estates,
3: didn't we? Yeah. What did that show up? I mean, that, that was basically to look at what what services were like out there currently, really, for kind of waste and recycling, um, and the areas that potentially might need some, some, some attention. And I think the key thing that we found is there were lots of examples of just very poor signage mm. uh, or lack of signage. So... So even if people got to the bins, they wouldn't really necessarily know what to recycle in them. Um, Bin rooms that were quite, you know, dark and, you know, just not very inviting. Um, you know,
2: some people use them as a toilet, like I've just said. Yeah. Um, people regularly said to us that um, the communal bins were somewhere you just had to get in and yeah. get out of a, as quickly as possible, which mm. led to this sort of new insight for us, which was around thinking around the fact that people didn't have plan Bs. So often they were walking down with their recycling, their bag of recycling or maybe their bag of normal waste. And then when they got there... If one or other of those bins were full or sometimes both of those bins were, bins were full or overflowing, what do you do? Often they were describing um, behaviour that we would class as contamination, but actually they were thinking, is it better than fly tipping to contaminate the recycling? And you can sort of see mm. these sort of dilemmas people got themselves into. Sometimes that was down to the quality of the signage, but also the, the space and how comfortable people felt mm. processing what they needed to do.
4: I think the, the word I was, I was thinking of as well, you said welcome inviting I suppose what we took away was that mm. people don't often want to go into them. Sometimes uh, they're technically clean, mm. um, but they're not places people want to go into, and which is why they then leave them on the outside and then ironically causes more problems for us. Uh, and the other thing that we took is that actually a lot of our team and our residents did care. And then you saw this really kind of random ad hoc signage appearing where people were yeah. sort of, what's that sort of passive aggressive signs coming up? <laughs>
0: that makes me think about things like resident associations or or representatives who are you know on the estate who are responsible for us because very often in our world people say well if you've got a local champion then they can really help but it felt from the research and inventory stages and the conversations that we have with you guys at
2: Peabody that, that that wasn't actually that helpful? Well, what we saw, first of all, is that people were quite environmentally conscious. So we actually didn't tell them the project was about recycling until maybe halfway through the whole research process. So we had a lot of spontaneous conversations with people about how important recycling was when they didn't even know that's what the project was. So that's a really good sign. But then when it comes to things that people are genuinely finding difficult, being nagged again and again by local residents doesn't help really because they're actually not solving the problem the people mm-hmm. already had the knowledge it was the ease with which recycling yeah. could happen that was really an issue so there's sort of disconnect there, which actually starting to cause a bit of frustration and resentment especially when your day-to-day experience is going down to the communal bins and there's fly-tipped recycling and in general I would say that people felt that despite what their neighbours were telling them that their neighbours were not good recyclers and that would bring down the kind of whole tone yeah.
0: Um, there's, there's these um, little bits of received wisdom in the waste and recycling community about what to do with flats recycling, and one of them is, is giving people a reusable bag. And I think that came
2: out of the research as not being a good idea, didn't it? For various definitely reasons, definitely not. Well, um, I think one of the one of the issues with the reusable bag situation is that people would often want to drop their rubbish off on the way out of the flat. So on yeah. their way to work, for example, or on, and that's partly because it's quite long way you know some of these flats didn't have lifts so to um, have a journey which would mean you'd have to go down through all of that journey and then back up to the flat to return a reusable bag just didn't really seem that probable and I totally understand that from my perspective that just seems like a bit of a faff doesn't it really and the other option is to take the bag which had the Gaki recycling in it with you again doesn't seem to be like you know take Mm, it to work (laughs) what have you got there becky oh i've got my my empty (laughs) bin juice bag (laughs) not the sort of thing that people want to be carrying around with them all day is it so that's um, not a hot tube no No. and so people were mainly taking their recycling down in plastic bags which were the the bags that they were using to store their recycling in 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 their um, homes and i think and then putting the whole bag Into um, the rubbish. And I think again, a lot of behaviour change principles are around trying to work with what people actually do rather than trying to change behaviours. So what one of the things that the the team did do was think about the possibilities of accepting plastic bags in the recycling.
0: And I'm reminded that the full report from the Ethnographic Research is on our Resource London website, which is www.resourcelondon.org along with some videos from the residents that took part, and they're really interesting viewing. So yeah, motivation, knowledge and ease were the three things that Becky clearly said uh, we're trying to tackle. So what,
1: if any of those are lacking, should we say, mm. that means your recycling performance is going to suffer.
0: That's right, yeah. They're like the magic kind of, kind of Bermuda Triangle, the, or whatever the opposite is. Of the
1: three-legged, triangle. It's, the three-legged stool it's the three-legged stool of successful recycling. Exactly. Knowledge motivation and ease. That yeah. makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, you've actually. got to want to do sense. it. You've got okay. to have
0: the facilities and the information to do it and it's got to be super easy. Otherwise okay. you just ain't going to do it.
1: Right. So if you know nothing else or if you turn the podcast off at this point. Yeah. Take that away. With Most you. important If you are thing. designing a recycling service or you want to be successful at recycling wherever you are in an office environment, commercial environment, In a local authority environment, you need those three factors to be successful. Knowledge, motivation, ease.
0: Exactly. Right. So that was how the team then got on with designing the project to try and tackle those three things on the 12 estates. Um, And they worked with councils, uh, six councils in London, Camden, Hackney, Lambeth, Tower Hamlets, Westminster and Islington, and with... Waste collectors who are involved with the estate, with the Peabody team and their um, their caretakers, with the research agency, with the comms team here, my team, and with some behavioural scientists and experts to develop a number of different interventions and some materials and guidelines to help us um, design signage and sort out bins and collections and the kind of the more practical stuff as well as other more behavioural stuff.
1: Are we going to hear about that next?
0: We are going to hear about that next. Great. And we'll also hear a bit in this next section about how we monitored. And evaluated the project, which was also a pretty innovative approach, I think. And most importantly of all, whether it worked. Well, that takes us on to the, once we've done the research, how are we actually going to act on that? What was developed out of that, and how did it work with all the
3: different partners and stakeholders as well? It was a, quite a long process, obviously, because we had a lot of information, because we had information from the ethnographic, like Becky's been talking about, and then we had all the information from the inventories as well. Um, and it was really trying to you know, map those things together to look at what was going to motivate people the most and make it easy for them and give them the knowledge to be able to actually do something different. Mm. <laughs> we ended up um, with a kind of set of standards that we felt would be were appropriate for all recycling facilities and kind of good communications really with people. So, kind yeah. of service that we felt so would, you, help would help them the most. To
0: and you recycle. and the team
3: applied that package of you know kind of really good standards right across all 12 estates yeah all the estates that we chose to work with mm-hmm. and with Peabody yeah, across all 12 mm-hmm. and then two of those 12 they just had that that package on them and then the other 10 had a, a variety of five other um interventions that, mm-hmm. that we also took from the mm-hmm. the ethnographic and mm-hmm. the inventories um, so those those five extra um interventions were providing people with sacks so yeah. single use plastic bags basically in their home, in their kitchen, yeah, to store recycling in, because they were telling us that they were a lot of them were telling us in the ethanol they were using it. Yeah, so I provided them with the first roll, and then we provided dispensers on the outsides of every single block, so they could easily get another bag or another mm-hmm. you know another few bags, rather than what historically has happened really when it comes to kind of that kind of thing where you have to phone a council hotline or. Mm. Go down to the local library and I mean, most people yeah. don't bother unless you're very committed. So. Yeah, and this is about making it easy. Yeah, it? and that was the whole thing about making it easy um, and putting it kind of front of mind for people because they saw it every time they came into their house. Yeah. Um, so, that was, so that was the first one. As Becky was saying, people wanted to kind of have some feedback. What were other people doing? Were they doing well? Yeah. <laughs> the, the second one was a feedback mechanism. So basically just posters, big poster sites on some of the estates. So feeding yeah. back to the residents changing them every month and and being specific to that estate as well. The third one was providing smaller bins. So on the whole, communal recycling bins are kind of big beasts of bins,
2: basically. Mm. (laughs) And often big banks of them as well, all together in one place. Quite kind
3: of, you can only put them in certain places because they're so large. So so actually providing um, smaller recycling bins that we can actually place closer to where people are going to actually walk past them more easily. The fourth one was emotive signage. So, how, how do we motivate people to change the decision they're making when it comes to their mm. waste in their homes? So, we had some quite nice, kind of family orientated emotive signage on the, the rubbish bins. Basically, it kind of called call to arms, really. You know, think about yeah. think about your family's future, think about the planet's future.
0: Yeah, because we knew from the ethno, didn't we, Becky, that that was consistently came out without prompting that people cared about that kind of mm. stuff, like really uniformly across the piece.
2: Yeah, and it, what was necessary is just to help people reconnect with that motivation at that moment where they were feeling yeah. like they were doing a bit of a chore and, and that chore could sometimes take over their sort of actual motivation. So if you could just remind them of that motivation and also make it easy, then I think that's like the whole package that brings it all yeah. together.
3: Yeah, and the last one was something we are calling a tenant pack. So it's actually that was actually from Peabody. It was a little box with a, a leaflet about recycling. And because it came from Peabody, it was almost like a contract between Peabody and the resident about what Peabody were expected, basically, of their residents. So Peabody expected their residents to be recycling
2: regularly. And is it worth saying that that's one of the assumptions that was challenged um, from the research? So this yeah. idea of the tenant information pack was based on the idea that transience is actually an opportunity um, for a landlord Um, and before transience was often seen as a problem because you couldn't kind of build up knowledge but when people moved into the flat it turned out that actually they had a sort of window of opportunity a kind of teachable moment if you like and where they were looking around and trying to think what is the recycling setup here so and often there was a vacuum of information about what they actually should do at that particular moment. So the tenant pack really helps to show how important recycling is to the landlord and yeah. draw people's attention yeah. to the actual setup. And it looks yeah. beautiful as well. And we
4: were very pleased to see the boxes in the recycling bin the day after.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we knew
4: they'd been opened yeah. uh, and they'd been recycled. And the contract was, was an interesting one as well for us because we are not responsible technically for the waste and yet, when it goes wrong, the first person the residents contact is Peabody. Yeah,
0: because so they're it's not kind of trying the to pick,
4: pick up. Yeah, you know, you see us as the responsible party. Well, let's work together and let's be jointly responsible, and we'll manage that relationship together.
2: One of the things that's really innovative about this particular project is the recognition that it was not going to be one particular solution that was going to make all the difference. And actually, if you look at the kind of base package that went into the um, sort of upbringing up the standards across all the states there's a sort of number of different things that were done in order to do that and then when we added in the behaviour change interventions there were often multiple that existed on each site and I think that is quite different sometimes to how behaviour change projects were often run and I think that really reflects the complexity of this particular issue where people are their behaviour is in a context, and yeah. that context is affected by many factors. And yeah. just changing one may not necessarily yeah. have the desired of impact
0: that's about measurability often, isn't it? I mean, that's the issue is that when you're doing a behaviour change project and behavioural interventions, it's really difficult to measure the impact of multiple things um, and to unpick them. So people do do them one at a time in order to be able to see, oh, we did that one thing and we did it for six weeks and it had this effect and we did that one thing, etc. But we, as you say, deliberately went for a much more complex nuanced approach with this. But in
3: terms of evaluation and measurement. I mean, that made it really complicated, didn't it? Yeah, really complicated. We had to use something called QCA, Qualitative Comparative Analysis. Um, And it's the first time that that type of evaluation had been used in the waste industry at all. Wow! I think the thing is, in the sphere we're talking about, there's just so many things that can impact the behaviour of people and therefore Mm -hmm. the additional material that you might get or the lack of the additional material you might get as a result of that. So the whole point around the qualitative comparative analysis is that it tried to get rid of all that noise and actually make sense of the data that we had. We collected an awful lot of weight data um, and did a lot of waste compensation analysis, both before and after, as well as we spoke to, you know, over 70 residents at the end of the project and had a good two-hour chat in mm-hmm. their living rooms about what they thought of of both the standard that was across all 12 estates, but also the individual behaviour change interventions that we put in as well. Uh, overridingly, the most important factor that has led to the increases in recycling that we've seen, and we've seen about a 26% increase in recycling across the 12 estates. Wow, average. Wow, that's great. Yeah, that's across those 12 good. estates. The overwhelming factor that, that led to that was the introduction of that standard service across the 12 estates. So, you know, making your bin rooms a bit more appealing, making sure you've got Bins that aren't overflowing. Making sure that you take carrier bags so that people can actually get a carrier bag in there mm-hmm. rather than you know spending half an hour trying to stuff it in. Good signage, good leaflets, all that kind of thing.
4: And there's a change of bin as well. Um, simple things if you're interested in the design of bins, but we <laughs> yeah. changed change the way it opens, yeah, which had a huge impact because when you get a massive 50-inch TV, what people tend to do is not break the box up and neatly put each little bit in. They put the whole box in, and if it fits, it fits. If it doesn't, it stays roughly where it is, or they rip the bin open, it sits on top with all the packaging in it. But by making the... Reverse lid, the yeah. Rever- and the opening bigger, yeah. um, it enabled us to get more items in and control the contamination
3: as well. Yeah, because
4: so, people couldn't just force, force yeah. open the lid. Um, yeah. And that, that's worked pretty well. And I don't think we've had any that have been forced open no, of all the bins we put in, and that's over a year and a bit now.
3: That's pretty
0: good. So it's, it's worth saying that that has been called the Flats Recycling Package, that set of standards and guidelines, yep. just making sure that the whole service works well and is well communicated to residents. And that was the thing that all 12 of the estates had. So that's been the most impactful thing, yeah? Definitely
3: yeah. been the most impactful thing And um, we've got from the toolkit. analysis that we've done, yes. And there's a toolkit that we're launching as well that basically is a step-by-step guide for People like Peabody or, you know, local authorities, um, not just in London, but across the country, um, or managing agents who who are interested in improving the, the recycling facilities on the, on the sites and the estates that they manage. It can be done by anyone. Anyway. You don't need to
4: be a waste specialist. You just need to be able to look and say, well, where do people walk, basically? Yeah. Where do we think the bins would most appropriately go? And then how do I make them clean and presentable and make it obvious what needs to go where? We were obviously benefited from having Gemma and her teams there, but... Going forward, we won't have Gemma holding our hand every way, although I'm trying to keep her as long as I can (laughs) to help us. But, you know, the toolkit is there to guide you and it is something that can be done. And once you've done a few, it's just a case of replicating uh,
3: that process.
0: And In terms of the the five extra behavioural interventions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which ones do you think have made the, the most positive impact?
3: Certainly, from the um, feedback from residents, the most positive feedback that was used the most is the in home solution. So, actually, providing people with bags, the plastic bags, plastic so and, bags the dispensers. and the dispensers to get more, yeah. and the smaller bins as well. So, making it just a little bit easier.
4: We assumed that the storage of the plastic bags outside people's front doors, and they're like those things in Sainsbury's or Tesco's, and I'm sure there's many other good supermarkets. Yeah, the, the, veg- <laughs> <laughs> the veg bags, basically. We thought people aren't going to like this, but they did, they loved it. <laughs> Yeah. And it's the one thing they consistently say, "Well, where are they? We? we want more of these." And they weren't apart from the odd behavior, they weren't abused. We didn't see people taking
3: 300 as Becky said when they needed them, they took them when they didn't, they didn't. Certainly when we did a kind of waste composition analysis towards the end of the project, most of the bags people were using for recycling. Some people were using them for for rubbish. Mm. But again, but back of the just, size of the kitchens. Yeah. Inevitably, yeah, people just will what's use what's convenient and yeah. wash bits in their k- kitchen. Yeah. Aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. And the bags were recyclable, or they were. Yeah, they were slightly
0: smaller than your average supermarket carrier bag, and their handles were slightly smaller, so it would have been more difficult to use them just for shopping. Yeah, and that was deliberate. But also, I think we agreed with every single borough that was involved that they would collect and process the plastic bags for yes. recycling, which yeah. is not always the case. So you do need to make yeah. sure that your operational spec
3: is, is right as yeah. well. And making sure, where if possible, that they're, they're made from recycled plastic as well.
0: So that sounds quite positive then. Sounds as though the interventions and in the flats recycling package have had an impact.
1: Uh, yeah, it's a tough gig, um, recycling in flats. Let's go back to that ethnographic findings and think about what we've learnt through the lens of those three things. So motivation, knowledge, and ease. Now, we've got this thing called the Flats Recycling Package, which they discussed. Yep. And the Flats Recycling Package, I think, really nails the ease. So yep. from the point at which the waste is created, residents put in their recycling in a plastic bag, taking it with them on their route to the you know to wherever they're going via the recycling facilities which have had a lid designed yeah with a receptacle to take the plastic bag to deposit it so you don't have to try and stuff it through that letterbox style yeah. thing with the brushes on it which has had the lid reversed so that the labels don't get bashed off when the things are lifted onto the recycling truck.
0: Yeah, so people can still read the signs and stickers on them. Exactly.
1: And because you don't need to try and stuff your recycling into this strange letterbox-shaped hole, you don't need to force the lid open to get your recycling in and therefore contamination appears to have gone down by quite a considerable amount. So I think ease is dealt with. Then we have knowledge... I mean you you come from a communications background Mm. Ali so that's something you just have to keep working at isn't it?
0: Yeah you just have to keep communicating it's like any good relationship it's all about how you communicate about things and um, I think there's part of the flats recycling package there's some communications elements in there some information elements to make sure that people know what they've got to put where so signage and um, a regular leaflet every year so those things are really essential. I'm not sure... They necessarily nail it completely, but they certainly go some way towards it. But yeah, it's a constant maintenance.
1: Thing. Okay, so let's say we nailed these. Knowledge is something that needs constant work. It's yeah. just bread and butter work for local authorities to keep communicating with their citizens about how they participate in the service. And then motivation. I don't think we nailed that. And I think that I is such a complicated area with so many multiple external influences on people's lives this isn't my area of expertise as you know but um, it doesn't appear to me that the relatively blunt tools that we used probably got to the nub of something so complicated as motivation so that's something that needs further work yeah
0: absolutely and I think that the issue with motivation that we see time and time again is that very often people Think they're motivated, but that doesn't translate into the actual behaviours of recycling. So they care about the environment, or they are, you know, they might be going out on the climate protests. But when it comes to just putting the basics into the right bin at home, that doesn't translate. So it's about kind of finding the sources of that motivation and pressing the right buttons. And I agree. I think that we 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 use some reasonably blunt instruments in this project to do that, and they didn't work.
1: I think, therefore, that in that context. It, this is this is a really good result. What we've seen. So we've seen across the was it twelve estates that we intervened. We saw on average a two point seven percentage point increase, which is quite modest, but it hides some reasonably big increases. So we saw some schemes where recycling went up by six percent and five percent and six point five percent. So there was a lot of good results. And, and I think this is even more important, because of the ease of use and the change the, the subtle changes that we made, and we did that deliberately, it resulted in this contamination decrease. And contamination on average decreased by a quarter. Now, I think in the real world, what that would mean is, depending upon how you collect your recycling, it would probably mean less loads rejected at the Murph, less cost to local authorities, and more recycling. So the real-world impact of a reduction in contamination coupled with an increase in the amount of recycling that you collect would be a more significant increase in your actual recycling rate. Mm. And we're not able to show that here because of the complexity involved. But I don't think it would be beyond... I don't think we'd we'd be too far out if we were to say that some of those better performing estates where you were looking at 6 percentage increases anyway, with that reduction in contamination, we'd probably see an increase in recycling maybe upwards of 10 percentage points or further north of that, which is significant. We're now talking about significant changes in recycling. And all that has to be done with this basis of a flats recycling package in place coupled with making sure people understand how to use a system and then I think the next stage is we'll need to work on motivation to really start to crank that recycling rate up and it's also worth remembering that food and textiles are not included.
0: Absolutely yeah so those figures are based on removing the food stats from the three out of the 12 estates which actually do food recycling collections so yeah the opportunities there are, are huge and we saw quite a lot of textiles in the residual waste, which could be taken out by other means. So
1: that's right. So, so I mean, food was uh, a, a, what a twenty-eight percent or so of the a, a, of of the residual bin. So um, we only did dry recycling. So if you add food in and the, and the textiles, you're now starting to get towards uh, potential on the face of it, at least. Uh, something like sixty percent or so of the material is recyclable, and then if you start to take out some of the contrary, some of the things that aren't recyclable, and the biggest obvious one is probably nappies. Um, you know, you're looking at around about seventy percent, which isn't bad considering you've got no food, uh, no garden waste, or very little garden waste in flat. Yeah, yeah most
0: people don't have a garden in a flat. So just to be clear, so those figures that you've just been talking about, food and textiles and Potentially nappies and and that adding up to maybe seventy percent. That's seventy percent of what we found to be in people's bins. That's right. Uh, their bins and their recycling. So yeah. the available material for recycling.
1: Yeah, there's um there's a chart in the report in an appendix five, and it has food waste at twenty eight percent. It has mixed dry recycling at thirty two percent, and then this other material that's not recycled at home. You have to go to bring banks, textiles, shoes, wheat and garden waste at 7.2%. And 32.6% of the waste is non-recyclable. So around about 70-odd percent of the waste stream is recyclable just as it is now. And if you can pull out some of the hygiene waste, and nappy waste, and maybe as as, uh, government regulations in relation to plastics start to take effect, you'll see plastic waste go down. Mm. It's actually a very positive picture, I think, going forward. And it's all got to be based upon this flats recycling package, I would suggest, that we have developed. And I think we've been able to demonstrate shows that it does work. It does increase recycling and crucially reduce contamination. Yeah. So the real world effect of this will be, I think, pretty significant.
0: Yeah. So there's an enormous amount of work and a lot of detail in this project report, which you can find, again, downloadable from the Resource London website. Um, if you're interested, as many of you will be in in the the kind of the real gritty detail that's in there and some of these facts and figures and the percentage breakdowns of what's in our bins and what's in our recycling and what could be captured and, and what can't. So, um, so go and visit the website and download that uh, or follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn and follow the links that we'll be sharing over the next few days. So just to conclude, there was some overarching kind of meta learnings, if you like, from running such a big multi-stakeholder project and that was the final thing that I asked about in the conversation with Gemma, Becky and James was what they felt their big learnings were out of this project. So what have we overall learned from all of this? What what would be your big take? I'm going to start with James.
4: For us it was looking at ourselves in a different light and understanding the impact we can have in areas we haven't traditionally been involved in. And we've always been involved in perhaps not standard housing things. We want to build communities, which are the big thing for Peabody. And as the environment becomes a bigger issue, it was something we want to get more involved in. And it's already extended through Gemma again and uh, the work here into clothing. And we now got some textile banks. And it's been pushed heavily by our chief executive, Brendan, who in his blog talked all about this project and saying about the future. It's not just about housing now. It's about building housing communities for the longer term and, this is just one element of that.
2: That's really nice to hear. It's a really positive message. What about you, Becky? Well, as a researcher, I think I'm going to go for a research point. And then because ethnography is used widely to support behaviour change projects, to support innovation. But in this sector, qualitative research like ethnography, it was quite quite a difficult sell. Pe- people found the fact that it was a small sample, um, only um, between 30 and 40 participants in total. And they were like, well, is that a robust enough sample? How can you possibly draw inferences from that to kind of inform a big programme like this? And we had to put quite a lot of effort into how to communicate the quality of that approach. And one of the great things about ethnographic work, it's basically very extensive qualitative research. It's not just interview, it includes observation. It's always done in context, spend quite a lot of time with the participants. We even set up cameras in some people's homes and analyse what they were actually doing, with their permission, of course. Um, so we actually, in terms of the depth of knowledge that we got from doing that, that was amazing, yeah. compared to what you might get from a survey, for example, where you don't know whether they're aware of their own behaviour enough to answer the survey question well, whereas our researchers were able to sort of see the inconsistencies in what people were saying and whether that was different to what they were doing, see that they were doing things on different days. All of that detail helped us to kind of build a more accurate picture.
4: And that was one of the things, wasn't it? That people say, if you ask them, do you recycle? Everyone recycles everything all of the time. Yes, We'd always. have a
2: recycling rate of
3: like 90% in London if
2: that yeah. was the case.
4: Yeah. And which is why your work was so important, I guess.
2: Yeah, you can go with that initial reaction and understand that they were proud of what they do recycle, but also see all those inconsistencies, all those moments yeah. where they don't. And that's where the sweet spot is around improving the recycling rates. Yeah.
0: So Gemma, as the overall project manager who's driven this whole thing through... <laughs> Apart um, from being
3: exhausted, what's your to main two, uh, I, think, I think it's a really simple thing, actually. I think it's just simple listening to what residents want and putting in some simple changes to make their bin rooms nice places to be in that are you know, looked after and maintained well has had actually quite a significant impact. Nothing huge that we've done here. Yeah, not rocket it's, science. It's not rocket science. I mean, I think it's worth saying that, you know, although it was a 26% increase in recycling, the recycling rate, was very low to start with on a lot of these estates so was only just over 10% and it's it's now just over 13% so it's still very low and I think the the kind of takeaway message for me is that yes we've put some really simple changes in and we've got some really good improvements but actually there's a massive change that needs to happen within flats Mm. and we're a little bit closer through some of the some of the work that we've done in understanding it but in terms of what we can actually do as, you know, housing providers and service providers in terms of actually getting those recycling rates up, you know, in the in the 40s and 50s, where we need them to be to meet national targets and to address the climate emergency. Yeah. That's a huge challenge, and I think we need some more kind of very significant policy changes to happen.
0: So Gemma was just saying there that although the results have been good, we've still got a really long way to go to meet targets and to have a really significant impact on waste-related emissions and on climate change. So... What else can we do to make a difference? It sounds as though there's enough recyclable material in everybody's waste recycling that if every single bit of it was captured and recycled, then we might be able to hit targets. But it doesn't sound like that's an easy thing to do.
1: Yeah, again, I'm really impressed with the ethno and the the identification of those three factors. So if we nailed is. And knowledge is something that has to be continued to work out. Motivation is the big unknown. It's something that we need to do more work on. What we did find, and this is interesting, is that there's a, a quite a broad age range of people who we think had a, a noticeably lower recycling performance, yeah. and that was the 15 to 34 year olds. Now I know that's uh, a broad range, and maybe when we do, if we dig into it, it's actually the older end of the spectrum or the younger end of the spectrum, we probably suspect it might be the younger end of the spectrum. I suspect but so. But we I need to do know, a bit more sure. work. And that mm. You know, that seems to be strange, doesn't it? Because it seems to me a lot of the climate activism is, is coming from younger people. And yet we see here, potentially, their actual behaviour is different mm. from the rhetoric. So mm. we need to do a bit of work on there and find out what's going on. And obviously there's the whole thing of food and textiles and how we can maybe affordably and correctly implement those kind of recycling services in Mm. in flatted properties and estates. And we'll work with partners to do that research. Uh, I know that Lennet, who are the London Environment Directors Network, are committed to working with Resource London to investigate further opportunities arising from the project. So we'll look forward to, to, to doing that research. I think we've got a really good start but it's obviously posing quite a few interesting and really fundamental questions around motivation both positive and negative.
0: Absolutely and it's not the first time that we've come across motivation and particularly younger audiences as something that we'd like to find out more about because it comes up regularly on on campaigns and other projects that we do. So um, yeah we've put some Love Not Landfill, bring banks out there on a few of the estates, and we'll see how much textiles they manage to take out of the waste stream on those estates. That's a a good step forward. And uh, yeah, more work, more work is needed as ever.
1: I mean, I think if you're listening to this podcast and you come from a city and you're looking at how to increase or introduce, probably increase recycling to your citizens who live in uh, estates or flats. Plans, yeah blank, um, thank you. Then this is a good place to start and you know I really would recommend the flats recycling package as an excellent system to think about introducing in your locality and just focusing on those three legs of the stool.
0: Mm, yeah, motivation
1: motivation is knowledge. knowledge.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Great. that's the end of another podcast a fascinating one this time i'm pleased to be able to report back on really substantial work that we're doing if you've enjoyed it then give us a like on your favorite podcast platform follow us on twitter and on linkedin to hear more from us on future projects thanks for listening